Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of the sharing economy? We've talked about this before on the podcast, right? This, um, the sharing economy as kind of a part of the new platforms that might emerge as a response to growing technological unemployment. Sure, new, new platforms meaning uh, new ways to use resources more efficiently and create, if not exactly jobs, but at least ways for people to acquire the resources they need through sharing. Right, right. Um, and I thought it you know, would be interesting to maybe think about that uh, idea again, but reframe it specifically through the lens of like what's happening now in the sharing economy, which, um, you know, is a pretty nascent field of business, but there are some big players that are emerging now. Uh, and to try to speculate how those types of organizations and businesses uh, might go into the future and whether the sharing economy is ultimately going to be a positive or negative net effect uh, for people. Sure. And I, to me, I don't want to you know derail this into semantics, obviously, right away, but I know what people call sharing economy. Obviously, we're talking about certain examples like Lyft and Uber or uh, couch surfing. And sure. These are the things we're talking Airbnb, mm-hmm. right? So what do all these things have in common? I mean, maybe this is sort of an obvious place to start is, is yeah, like what, what is, is this? The, the yeah. sharing economy, I think, is a fair question. And uh, what's being defined as the sharing economy now, I think, is a little bit nebulous. And it's it's um, I think it has that buzzwordy quality where... Uh, something like couch surfing, for example, that's been around for a while is pretty firmly, I think you can call that in the sharing economy. But then um, some of these more recent businesses, they might be using that as um, something of, uh, you know, window dressing. Uh, we used, you know, sometimes you call greenwashing if it's environmental or, you know what I mean? Like uh, a marketing take, tactic. A marketing tactic. You take the buzzword and you kind of come up with a way that your business is sort of related to the buzzword and you try to um, piggyback on that goodwill. So, yeah, I think that's something we should definitely uh, interrogate. And uh, to me, I don't have a formal definition here, um, so I don't know if you have one uh, called up, but to me it seems like the uh, sharing economy are – uh, these businesses that specifically deal in freeing up like a Slack resource. Like that seems to be the the thing that they all either have in common or at least claim to have in common. Well, it's a, like a, some sort of distributed Slack resource everybody has access to. Or a well, lot of people. Well, not everybody, yeah. but... A broad base. A lot of us have cars that we're not using or couches that we're not using or homes that we're not using year round. And those are the kinds of things that are being shared uh, as opposed to a Slack resource that's maybe like concentrated uh, in a few hands, right? That's what makes it feel like sharing is that these are just very distributed resources. Right, right. I think that's got to be part of the definition is it's, um, you know, ordinary uh, people, you might call them users, right? Because they're kind of users of websites uh, or or uh, phone apps provide the things or the service or whatever it is that's being uh, shared. Right. Yeah. So another one that, I, that we can maybe talk about later in the podcast uh, would be extra computing cycles would be something else that people have sitting around as a Slack resource, much like their unused car. You have unused computer processing power when your computer's just on your desk. So SETI at home, for example, or or Foldit are examples of 
um, the sharing economy then too, in that sense. I think it's not for profit. So then the buzzword that ends up getting used is more like crowdsourcing or something like that. So oh, there- right. Crowdsourcing. Right. Well, that's like a crowdsourced charity then in that case, because right, you're giving, uh, you're giving it up just for like a scientific purpose or a, a charitable purpose. But I do feel like there's a lot of overlap there and that the difference seems to be whether it's for profit or not. Right. Well, I think economy comes into, into play when you start talking about economics and sure. monetizing things. Right. People kind of have a vague idea of like what the sharing economy is you think of uber or lyft or airbnb or something like that um and i think there's a debate going on now out on the internet that's been you know pretty interesting for me to read uh that's between two camps and i think both camps have something legitimate to say so i want to cover both points of view uh on the one hand i think there's a point of view that these companies are innovative ways to free up idle resources and bring down prices, uh, defeat uh, bad regulations and improve competition. Um, but there's also, I think, a point of view that they're essentially like a nefarious business strategy to just like de-unionize, deregulate and contract out underpaid workers and really to take advantage of uh, both laborers and regulatory regimes uh, and get around requirements that are there for a reason. So uh, those sound like diametrically opposed things. It's hard to hold those both in your head and say they both have legitimate well, points. So I think it's we should talk about that. It does seem like these sharing-based businesses do often tend to evade regulation. And so a lot of it's how you feel about the regulation to begin with. If you think the regulation was there to prop up a monopoly business and create market inefficiencies, then down with the regulation. And if you think the regulation was there for people's safety... Uh, then maybe this is more concerning. Right, right. Well, and there's an ideological component to that, obviously. But I also kind of feel like the specific regulation matters. Like, um, you know, you might be more or less comfortable with regulation as a concept, but um, specific regulations, say, in the hotel industry, which are there largely, I think, to protect workers in the hotel industry from uh, hotel owners, are, like, particularly, I think, defensible compared to, say taxi uh, regulations that are there to basically limit the number of taxi drivers, you know? Um, That's just one comparison that I could make for two regulations where I like one and don't like the other one as much. But um, yeah, I think you're right. That automatically makes it seem like either a good idea to circumvent those regulations or uh, a nefarious one, just based on whether you agree with what the regulation yeah, itself is doing. And, and for me personally, yeah, my attitude about it has a lot to do with the regulation. Like, so yeah, I don't have a lot of sympathy for taxi medallions, which, you know, to me just seems to be a form of occupational licensing that, uh, right. It's keeps, like a guild, it's anti-competitive. Right. Uh, but I mean, yeah, some of these regulations that might be there in place to ensure certain, uh, quality standards for workers, you know, maybe right or, I'm more or safety for to customers too, which is yeah. another big part of, for example, like hospital. Uh, I mean, uh, hotel regulations is right. You know, literally just like hygiene and safety for um, the people using the service. Um, so yeah, you can definitely see that the strategy of deregulation is kind of a neutral strategy. It really depends on what the regulation is and uh, whether it's doing good or whether it's doing bad. I mean, they, they're capable of both. But at the same time, yeah, you can definitely, despite its uh, its friendly name, sharing economy, which makes it a good buzzword because it sounds so sunny and happy. Right. Uh, you can 
you can see what's really happening here, which is, you know, a lot of these upstart companies are exploiting a loophole in the regulation to, you know, claim some new territory. Right, right. And uh, using this buzzword to kind of whitewash what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case um, on one end of the spectrum. I think it's important to differentiate between these different services that are using this term, though, because it is a slippery buzzword. And I feel like there's a range of uses from completely altruistic networks out there that appear to be doing nothing but good, like something like couch surfing, where there's no money uh, exchanging hands. You know, you buy sort of good karma on the site by allowing your couch to be surfed on and then you surf other couches, right? So that's like... Um, it's a Slack resource. Lots of people have access to it. Not everybody has a couch, of course, so it does discriminate somewhat for people who have houses and have couches in them. But it seems to me like it's hard to argue that that's doing anything other than good. That's just, it's not like getting a hotel room, sleeping on someone's couch. It's a completely different type of experience with completely different expectations. And because you're taking the money out of it, you're making it accessible to a ton of extra people, right? Uh, that seems like clearly an economic good. It seems it's, like yeah. that's going to free up resources for other other things. It's the kind of like non-monetary sharing that's, you know, always been a major part of the culture of the internet. Right. But Just, taken out into the real world. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely I mean, it's right. not that different than, you know, if you want to hang out on this forum and have access to these useful files or whatever, then you every once in a while have to contribute something yourself. Right. It's like a seeding requirement, sort of. Right. Exactly. Um, and it, uh, I think, works really well. There's another website out there called Street Bank that basically does the same thing for, like, every small item, like, thing, you know, just small used things, furniture and small things like that. Um, which is, I think, just, again, it's, it's an unalloyed good. It's just people bartering uh, rather than um, buying, taking the money out of certain exchanges where the resource isn't really quite worth money, but it's worth something. And I think then there's like a middle ground of these uses, like um, the way Zipcar works. So, you know, Zipcar's business model, like they own the cars and you rent the cars from them at a relatively low rate. And the only thing that Zipcar really needs to do is occasionally have an employee go and move a car, right? Because somebody left it somewhere inconvenient or something. Uh, but they have very little in the way of employees. So they're not in a position where they're exploiting their employees. Uh, they're just sort of providing a shared resource at a lower price than owning the resource. Well, and this is where you pay and a monthly instead of. You can pay a monthly or you can pay per use, right? They have both. Uh, Business so I, I think this is a point, too, where this whole sharing economy starts to overlap a bit with the growth of subscription models as a monetization scheme right? rather than ownership in, in all kinds of goods. Right? right, right. So it's similar to like, yeah, a subscription uh, media service or something. You're right. And it is sharing only in the sense that the, the resource itself is shared among multiple users. But it doesn't meet that other requirement we we're talking about of the user bringing the resource, you know, right. it's not the user's car. So maybe Zipcar isn't a real sharing economy company at all. Maybe it is more of a subscription model company, but that's one that, you know, they're clearly capitalists. They're clearly making uh, a profit, but it also seems like they are doing so in a way that provides value to their customers and doesn't exploit their workers. You know, I, I find a hard time seeing anything wrong with it. It's just, you know, a business just like lots of other businesses. You know, you can have a problem with all business writ large, but it seems silly to have a problem with Zipcar. Uh, but maybe they don't really count. So maybe we should leave that aside. Actually, I guess that was my best example for like a kind of middle ground one. So if you can think of a better example that fully meets the requirements 
uh, let me know. But I think the ones that are, are sort of verging into this exploitative uh, realm are also the ones that I think are most aimed at disrupting an existing business, right? So they're taking an existing regulated business like hotels or taxis, and they are attacking it from the point of view of, well, let's have the user bring their resource and then we can get around, you know, they'll bring their own insurance. In the case of Uber, the drivers are insured and they'll be able to get around uh, labor laws like an Airbnb. They don't have to worry about uh, hotel labor laws because the manager, the person, you know, who owns or rents the the place that's being Airbnb'd does their own cleaning, right? So they become the worker and there's nobody to, to unionize or protect, right? Yeah, it's just putting more burden on the worker, yeah, in some right. cases, yeah. And, and it also drastically reduces prices. I mean, one of the major way that both Uber and Airbnb compete is that they're a lot cheaper than the regulated uh, versions of these things. And uh, at least in Airbnb's case, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that what they're offering is really different. Like I use Airbnb a lot and it's very different from uh, renting a hotel room in terms of the experience that you have of staying in a place, of staying in the actual neighborhood you want to stay in, you know, near where your friends live or near where the event you're doing is instead of the center of town where hotels are and uh, having uh, your own place and instead of a shared facility with, uh, you know, workers. Well, and even within Airbnb, you can, you have a range of experiences that you can get. So you can use Airbnb to take a single room in a house that's got a lot of people and activity in it if that doesn't bother you. Right. Uh, And in fact, that could be part of the experience you're going for is is actually meeting people while you're traveling. Right. Uh, Right. And it prices that in a way that, reflects what people are looking for, you know? Right. So I think in some cases you can argue, yeah, I think Airbnb has got a good argument, honestly, that what it's doing is it's not just disrupting hotels. They're not just recreating hotels and making the worker pay for it. Um, Whereas Uber is not really that different from a taxi service other than the app. I mean, truthfully, uh, you're right. Uh, Uber, I think, has a much worse argument that what they're doing is anything less than bald-faced regulatory uh, arbitrage, which, you know, I'm not saying I'm not impressed by how clever that is, uh, but but I think what they do is much more clearly anti-union, much more clearly anti-worker. They treat their workers really badly, and there's this post that's in um, Jacobin Magazine that I'll, I'll put a link to that uh, has been going around and around for the last week or so uh, that really lays out, I think, the the major case against Uber. Uh, it's really illustrative because they've had three business models, and I feel like their business models have changed from being relatively positive to being relatively negative. And if you look at their original business model was the black car model, right? So... Uh, in the state of California, livery vehicles are owned by their operators. This is a state of affairs that's just the, the existing state of affairs. So limousine drivers own their vehicles and have a special limousine driver's license uh, that they are required to have to be limousine drivers. But most people can't afford limousine through the limousine company. So this company, Uber, had the idea of letting people rent off-duty black cars at a lower rate so that uh, these drivers could capture some of their sunk investment back, make some extra money. And that seems like very similar actually to like the Zipcar model. It, it's uh, There's certain sunk costs because of a current regulatory sort of silliness. And they're just going to find a way to fit in there and make some of that money back for them and create an extra market. That seems like a positive for everybody. But then their uh, their competitor Lyft came out and they had to compete against Lyft. So they started that UberX and now the UberXL uh, services where 
they're just using regular drivers who own their cars. And all the studies that I've seen on this show that this doesn't actually work out for the drivers. People don't realize the maintenance and the uh, depreciation on their car from driving miles. So they don't realize that they're actually not even breaking even driving for these services. And uh, most of the Lyft and UberX drivers are... Um, you know, once you actually do the math, they're actually uh, in the red. That's unfortunate because um, on the one hand, it does seem like, you know, because it evades uh, sort of the occupational licensing, it all of a sudden frees up a lot of jobs for people that have spare time. And so, uh, but yeah, I can totally see it on balance with the car related fees, not actually being an easy situation to come out ahead on. Right. Well, it's hidden from the worker. And I think that's Really, the, the key element is that it's sort of not transparent what they're actually paying to uh, provide this service. And by shifting those costs... Wait, what's not transparent? The, the costs on your car, like people don't see the wear and tear and the mileage costs Right, but that's not being car. hidden from them. It's just like they're not it's inherently considering hidden. it. It's inherently hidden. It's not that it's... Yeah, it's just not transparently presented to them in, in a you know in an upfront way by Uber, uh, and it's inherently just because of the world the way it is. It's just hidden, and I think that's where the biggest problem with Uber sits. And again, like we like we mentioned in passing before, you know, I'm not actually that sympathetic to taxi regulations. The medallion system, where you know uh, taxi drivers buy medallions, they cost like a million bucks. They limit the number of taxis, and then taxi drivers are forced to buy their own vehicles. You know, their contractors are ready. So Uber it can't really contractize taxi drivers any more than they're already contractized. They're already pretty badly treated by taxi companies. But taxi regulations keep fares high and also uh, limit the number of, of drivers. You don't have to be like a raving libertarian to think that a city should have the number of taxis that it can support rather than the number of taxis that some taxi union says they should have. That's crazy, right? Or a government agency or whatever, whoever is setting the number. No, of, I mean, of you want it to be priced at a competitive place. I mean, I think Eventually, if the workers are wise to the fact that they're losing money, then, you know, it, it sounds like, the, you know, Uber workers need to be educated about this and there needs to be some push to in, inform people to do this math right. correctly well, when they're this, agreeing um, to take the job. But yeah. I think if that if people become informed about that situation, which I'm sure they will rather quickly now that this is being discussed, or I would hope so, you'd hope, yeah. uh, then, you know, they're not going to be able to accept those jobs anymore. I mean, no one, you know no matter how desperate they are, can afford a job where they're losing money. So right. so that'll have to hit a different equilibrium that's at least slightly higher. It might still be exploitative, but at, you know, the consumer's benefiting massively by getting cheaper rides. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's this is potentially heading towards something that is positive. But yeah, I mean, obviously, because it exists in this new regulatory space, even though the a concept is not novel whatsoever... Uh, you know, there are kinks to work out. Well, there are kinks to work out, but there are also trends. And, you know, the things that are most, I think, worrying, and, and this is uh, covered in that um, uh, article I mentioned, there is a uh, organization, I think it's CADA is the um, tagline, or the letters for it, that uh, is trying to be a kind of Uber and Lyft drivers union. Um, it's not really a union, but it's an organization of people. And, of course, the companies are fighting uh, this tooth and nail as you'd expect them to. And uh, in addition to that, they are doing a huge lobbying push and they are trying to get laws put in place that will make it hard to ever regulate these services to sort of, you know, um, permanently get them outside of the normal regulations. 
which again, I think, you know, depending on the circumstance might not turn out to be so bad because if they do in fact win and, you know, completely take over taxis, for example, then they're going to be a big, easy target for future lawmakers to regulate, I would think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do worry about their lobbying power because lobbying power can keep, you know, legislators in check. But at the same time, yeah, it does seem to me that uh, with this stuff, you have to be really careful with buzzwords and, you know, looking at whether a company really does what it says it does. That skepticism aside, it doesn't seem on the net any worse uh, to have a company that's in this supposed sharing economy to, than to have any other company. They seem like they do the same kinds of things that businesses do that warrant skepticism of business uh, and that the devil's in the details, but that when these things are run well, they can be really beneficial both to consumers and ideally also to, um, you know, people who have some kind of capital, like, you know, the people who own a house who can use Airbnb to, you know, lower their costs and um, use more of their house. Now, see, yeah. And, and yeah, and the definitions are slippery. I mean, because can you, is eBay the sharing economy? eBay, which has been around forever, which is taking Slack resources, which is people's, you know, junk that they could put up for yard sale. Sure. Uh, and giving them a distributed platform to sell to each other. And hit that, you know, that equilibrium point where, you know, you're making more than you would make from a yard sale, but people are paying less than they would pay in a store. Yeah, I mean, maybe that counts. That seems like it fulfills our definition. And, you know, the products are being brought to the table by the users. So in that sense, it's the same. Because uh, I do think that there's a there's a big divide between that. Like, I would sort of lump in eBay with Airbnb and with Uber and again, I think, you know, a company like Airbnb or eBay is offering more of a new feeling service, whereas I feel like Uber, yes, really is just like regulatory uh, evasion of a type. Yeah. But I, but I think there's a big gulf between that type of, you know, exploiting a Slack distributed resource and what are essentially barter systems. Right. right? Like right. you used the term barter before, and I wanted to come back to that. Right. But like, you know, the, like you said, the couch surfing. Right. And street bank is more like that. There's like free cycle, which is literally just like you, no money, just things for free. And I think there is a lot of potential. And maybe this is something we want to push off to later in the episode for growth in barter systems. Because yeah. I don't think that's been totally mined. Now, there's not as much, there's no profit in that. So it's right. Not right. So you don't see as many companies starting with that idea. But of course, you know, in a way, the, the initial sharing website is craigslist and it's you know it's simplicity and it's freeness and it's uh promotion of free and cheap things i think makes it sort of a root of this i, I also want to talk about the roots of the sharing economy in uh piracy right we mentioned earlier that uh, the culture of the internet has always uh had a certain like karmically driven uh share and be shared with kind of ethos that frictionless free sharing i think does inform how these services work and i think part of what is going on is that we're having like a kind of cultural war over whether that sort of frictionless sharing uh is wrong you know if, whether it has to be exploitative because it subverts an old way of doing things that for whatever it's bad points were has been dealt with and codified and accepted by society well you know people make money at the friction points sure. and when you take out the friction you take out an opportunity for some group of people to make money. Uh, sometimes that group is artists and, uh, you know, that strikes cultural nerves. Sometimes that group uh, are, you know, what we perceive... Hoteliers or taxi drivers. Or, or like something. what we perceive to be as middle class or working class professions. And those also... Right. Uh, strike a nerve with people. Right. 
uh, that that Jaron Lanier book that he came out with that neither of us like very much, right? Uh, uses different language. I think he believe he uses the term levy, but he really is talking about a point of friction, essentially, and and preserving these sort of points of friction as a way to uh, preserve a middle class, at least the. I think the sort of bankrupt theory that he had, but right, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of sensitivity around just disruption and you know uh, these old ways of making money being taken off the table, especially when it's not ever that clear what the replacement is going to be. Even if that replacement is coming, uh, it's a scary, you know, right? Well, hasn't in front had of all you. of its things worked out, and in the I mean, just the idea that like Uber can come on the scene and say, "Oh, well, we're not really a taxi company because of this and that technicality, and therefore we can't be regulated in that way." And then you know, they're they've been successful in defending that view. So that I mean, you can see why that does give people pause because you want to believe that um, whatever problems with taxis we've solved in the past, we could port those solutions over to a, a you know a slightly new organization of the taxi concept um right and that's just not to, always the way things work and I just guess. to be clear what i mean by friction like a taxi medallion is a source of friction right that slows people becoming taxi drivers it's it's a it actually slows people down but it creates opportunities for money making for at least the people that have the medallions uh right and uh you know uh, music uh, not being freely copyable is a source of friction, right? That slows down music dissemination, but in such a way that makes it possible for people to make money. By selling vinyl uh, records or something like that, yeah. or selling CDs. Right? So, you know, these are all, all these points of friction are being eroded. Uh, and yeah, that's very, that's sensitive. If you, old businesses die and, and people get upset. Um, right, but, right. And I think this is just another example of that. I guess that's the point that I'm making is that this it is really very similar to what we see over and over again uh, as other things, you know, ephemeralize and digitize and these friction points um, become smooth. Um, so I want to move forward now at this point. I think we've covered like that's the debate right now. That's what's going on in the world. And I think, you know, your ideology and your thoughts about particular regulations will probably influence how you think about various companies. But let's think about this debate as it moves into the future and what might these companies look like um, in a world of accelerating progress, uh, particularly as we, you know, if, if in fact we see more technological unemployment, uh, do we think that this is going to be a salve or do we think that this is going to be uh, something that hastens that along? I think, you know, it could go, it could go either way. I could see it being a gap bridger for middle class and even lower class people who have some capital investment but have lost their income. You know, if I'm a radiologist and I own my house, but now I don't have a job, maybe I can Airbnb out my house and make some fraction of my former income, and that's better than nothing, you know? Um, especially if I can also be retraining for something else or doing, you know, additional uh, economic uh, you know, activity at that time. Yeah, th there's two ways I can see this providing relief to people in the future, right? Okay. Which is, which is, one is, again, and I do think we are actually talking about two things. So there's the the using of the distributed Slack resources, which we've talked about before, which means you take something that a lot of people have, right? Right. And again, I, there's a lot of potential, say, for unused computer cycles to be maybe sure. another thing that's, it's not really been monetized that well yet. I mean, again, it gets used in creative ways for... Uh, uh, against your will, it gets monetized as a botnet, right? <laughs> that's the, yes. Uh, that's the one in... <laughs> that's the innovative, uh, ahead of the curve um, example. Sure. But you could see a voluntary botnet, right? That yeah. you join on purpose and can turn off at will, uh, but it does exactly the same thing and, and pays you. 
And there's a sense in which all unemployed people are a Slack resource. So, right. of course, if you can access those people, you know, in a distributed sense. Well, it was like job distribution or like task distribution sites are kind of an early step. Sure. That, so let's right? talk about task like rabbit. A, like is a task that, rabbit. Is, right. that, um, is that a form of sharing economy? I guess it's it's not that dissimilar from Airbnb. It's right. Uh, or like. Uh, right. I Uber. think that accounts. I mean, the, the user brings the service, which is their their brain and it does free up a resource that wasn't you know available in the old way so sure so so yeah so i think there's probably some potential there um i i'm sort of quickly running out of ideas that haven't been tried though in that space like you know that aren't already sort of covered by your car your body or your house but there are a few that i looked up like when i was researching for this post that um that surprised me. So like one of them is like a, a dog watching like a pet watching thing. Right. I guess if you're walking one pet, you might as well be walking five pets. Exactly. I okay. mean, it, it, it connects people who have pets, which is a subset of people. Yeah. I mean, it, it does seem like it's kind of a limited number of things that at the end of the day, average people are going to have access to that are, that are you know economically viable, even in this distributed way. But uh, that for that other category, the barter system i think that we have not really explored what's possible there at all like i think that there's so the barter networks that we mentioned like couch surfing um they're made possible because they're very restricted barter right there it's like my couch for your couch at some other time right they make the value exchange easy by sort of restricting what yeah what you can barter right because historically that's the challenge with barter. That's, well, why, that's why barter always turns into monetized systems, right? Is to try to figure out how to figure out how many cows a duck is worth or whatever. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm no money historian, but that's one of the reasons people give for having money in the first place. Right. Right. It seems is like it, that's a, that's a reason to, to use it. Right. But I think that like, for example, online, you can, there's a couple examples I'll give. First of all, um, there's something called a math trade. Uh, that people used to trade games online. And I think there's other things. There's also uh, Ben Gertzel recently wrote about something called an offer network, which was his idea for a non-money system. And actually, these are kind of similar. The way the math trade works is say you put like, okay, these are the games I have. Uh, these are the games I want. Uh, this is These are some constraints on what I'd be willing to trade. Uh, and then, you know... 50 other people do the same thing and then you push play on a computer algorithm and the computer algorithm figures out this whole thing that maybe routes through three or four nodes in the system where it's like, okay, you give these games to this person over here and then you receive games from this complete other person over there. Right. And again, that's still just one item. Right. And what Ben Gertzel was talking about was very similar, but talking about, uh, you know, going across multiple types of goods now uh, to where I just say, here are the things that I want. Uh, you know, I want... It's like a desire com- like I commodifier. Want, <laughs> I want someone who can sew up this jacket that I have, uh, and I also want a copy of this book. Right. And I'm able to give guitar lessons right. or something. And... I don't necessarily have to give guitar lessons to the same person that sews my shirt, which right. is one of the normal constraints of barter. Because if I just enter my desires in the system and I enter what I'm able to give in the system through you know, some algorithmic math, hopefully a computer can sort all this out. 
that's not an easy problem to solve, but it doesn't sound impossible. And it's like, it, I mean, that would be, I think, the ultimate sort of like, like updating barter for like, you know, modern times and, and making it, you know, fulfill its original promise, which is like, you know, just trading what you have for things that you need without money, but actually getting around the inefficiencies that are normally inherent in that process by using a computer to kind of crunch the math and take this, let's see, very high level look at a large group of people uh, and figuring out these situations where you don't have to be exchanging directly with one person, right? Right, right. I mean, that just comes down to trust in the system, I suppose, to be fair, I guess. And I think um, that seems like the, the challenge there is how do you build that trust? Uh, another uh, way that this could go, I think, is it could go in a way that it doesn't particularly help with technological unemployment. It could just hasten it. I mean, one very specific example is that... Um, the CEO of Uber has publicly uh, announced that they will eventually replace all their drivers uh, with self-driving, with a fleet of self-driving cars. And when they do that, uh, both the people who are currently the Uber drivers who are amateur or semi-amateur uh, drivers and the taxi drivers that they're competing against will all go out of business, I assume, um, because there's just no way a human's going to compete with a not-human. So you could see uh, some of these places, uh, depending on the resource that it is that they are um, providing, you could see some of these places uh, just uh, using the users as a sort of stopover, uh, sort of in the same way that manufacturing, I think, is using outsourcing as a stopover to full automation, right? Uh, so they're sending jobs to China and Indonesia now, um, but in... Uh, five or ten years, they might be keeping those jobs in the U.S. and just having robots do them because that'll be even cheaper. And uh, the same idea is potentially applicable to something like Uber, um, where they're, I think, well positioned since they already have the mapping software that finds the person based on their cell phone. They already have a lot of the technology in place that you'd need to take advantage of self-driving cars. If they were to use a self-driving fleet, you could see them saving a lot of money and um, you know, being able to further undercut uh, the taxi industry and, and really take a lot of, um, of their business. Yeah, the, the fact that this is pretty transparently their intention. I mean, um, they're publicly saying should, it. should so. rob them of the moniker uh, sharing economy. Right. Well, what they are instead is they're really this new automation economy, right? Which yeah. is, I think, the much more powerful trend. And the automation economy is, I think... Um, you know, Uber and Amazon and Google now, uh, companies that are trying to automate things that humans used to do so that they can provide them to users for free. <laughs> ah, ah, okay, but here's right? a key distinction, right? Because we were talking about how Airbnb provides an actual new experience and Uber doesn't. And I think, I think it occurred to me like one of the reasons that's the case mm -hmm. is that, uh, and one of the reasons that Uber is headed for this automation economy and not for staying in this more sharing uh, economy. Right, which is already kind of a buzzword for them, I because, think. Because uh, what you want from your driver is not a human experience. You just want to get where you're going and you, you know, most people don't want their driver talking to them. Maybe they want, maybe if they're new in town, they want to know, like, what's a good place to eat. Occasionally, you might ask a taxi driver that, but you could just as easily ask Yelp I mean, that. Yelp, Yelp will tell yeah. you that too. So I, I think that uh, whereas Airbnb, uh, as we were saying, like something you can get that you can't get from a hotel that not every Airbnb customer wants, uh, but some of them do. 
is more of a human experience. You're in someone's house, you're in a neighborhood, they may even be there, you may meet them, there may be other people staying there, and you may get uh, a different experience than you would get that's sort of the cold hotel experience where you, you know, you want the maid to come in when you're gone and never to see anybody that you, when you don't want to see them. Right. Uh, So, like, one of the uh, things that we haven't talked about yet, which is supposed to be a sharing economy trend, and I don't know if there's some business that is the face for this, is the concept of uh, sort of, like, home restaurants. We haven't talked about food Okay, as yeah. Being a, as be, like, I, I've seen articles speculating about this, but I don't know if there's a particular startup that's doing this. Maybe, maybe you know of one, but... Uh, I don't know of one, and that is interesting because, yeah, you'd think that that would exist, and that's another place where, I, you know, I am much more sympathetic to the regulations that are in place... But like, let's say like, I like to cook. Right, I have a, right. I have a big dining room table. Yeah. I'm going to be cooking for 12 people. Here's what's on my menu. Uh, if you want to show up and get dinner, then here's how much it costs. Right, right. No, right? I think that's a great idea. If that doesn't already exist, uh, listeners, one of you should make that because that sounds like <laughs> The idea is out there because I've seen articles talking about this yeah, as yeah. a new frontier. Right. Uh, and of course that. It runs into all the same issues, you know, about... Oh, yeah. Me. What happens if somebody gets sick, you know? I mean, there's health regulations I mean, this one may, be, it may right? just be regulated out of existence before it can even happen. But the part of the reason I brought it up is, like, that's a place where maybe part of the value would be in going to someone's home. Sure. The particular atmosphere, the sort of home cooking feel. It's not... You mean, that you could imagine that providing something that's actually novel and different from a restaurant experience in the same way that Airbnb Airbnb provides something that's actually different from a hotel experience. Right. Because it's monetizing a human element that you can't just automate away. Right. Now, this reminds me of an idea that we talked about years ago, our own sharing economy idea, which was like the home screenings idea. Oh, sure. Basically the same thing. You want to do a home screening of a film, like especially now that many films don't show in theaters anymore. Uh, You just do it. You list it on a website. People who want to show up, buy a ticket through the website and show up. And then uh, you get, you know, paid back or something uh, or something like that. Yeah. And if someone has like a nice big screen, then like sitting on their couch, like with a beer from their fridge and like, uh, you know, a bathroom that only like eight other people are using instead of a hundred other people is right. like maybe a nicer experience than going to a theater sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It might be a nicer experience or it might be just a way to see a movie you couldn't see, uh, with a group of people elsewise. You can then immediately talk to about it, right? right? Because those eight people in that room, even if they don't know each other before the movie are going to have an easier time talking to each other than the same eight people sitting in theater seats because of just the cultural the norms cultural of that expectations, environment. Right, right. And they've just, you know, shared this experience, not just of watching the movie, but sitting in this guy's house and the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, that's another idea that we'll probably never do. So if anybody screens, wants to do it. Screens are a slack unused resource. Screens are a slack unused resource, especially projectors and big screen TVs. You know, if you have a good sound system, you can create a pretty good experience at home, and uh, for a lot of movies, uh, that would be better than watching it on your tablet in your bedroom or something. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think dance there's, parties. There's lots of room dance parties. Yeah, well, and then you get into like, like list- liquor music. licensing, right? And that's like where I think the regulatory problems are there. Um, I'm just having a party. Right, and I you mean, can have a party as long as you know it doesn't. I'm personally inviting you after you requested to be personally invited through. I think like meetup is like kind of a uh, party, a 
you know, sharing party sort of thing, right? It's interest. True. Yeah, yeah, Meetup is. I, I don't. I don't know how Meetup makes money. Or like I don't that. either. I have no idea what their business model is. Okay. That's something to look up. But um, anyway, yeah, I don't know. The point I guess I wanted to make here is just that uh, I think these sharing economy companies, if they stay truly sharing economy companies, I think John's right, that they're going to be um, beneficial because they're either going to free up a true Slack resource or they're going to... Um, improve barter in a way that will free up other resources. You know, if you're bartering for some things, then whatever money you have can go to the things that can't be bartered for. Um, and some things just can't be automated easily. Like, uh, I don't see how they're going to automate Airbnb. Like, that's that doesn't make sense. I don't see it, you know? So um, I do think some of the sharing economy maybe is just going to shift away, and things that can be automated will move into this automation economy, and things that can't will stay in the sharing economy um, another thing that militates toward the more like barter based or free money, you know, not moneyless systems is like if people can't afford to use them, right? I mean, it's sort of obvious, but, uh, if consumer patterns get disrupted by technological unemployment, then it'll be much more attractive to do something like crowds, uh, like a uh, couch surfing. Uh, yeah. I mean, something. this is a sort of a yeah. parachute option for like the really bad technological unemployment consumer collapse scenario, which right. is that like. You know, it, with if we all still have computers, a bunch of us in the city uh, with skills and some resources ought to be able to figure out some way to trade for what we need, you would think. Right. Or you'd hope so. You'd hope that we could somehow... Or it'll just be riots, I don't know. Yeah, or riots. Or yeah, we'll just or destroy other. everything. Um, and, you know, and obviously skepticism is, is really warranted here because deregulation strategies or deunionization strategies... Uh, various business scams are going to always cling on to any buzzword that they can find. So, you know, you're always are in danger when you make anything a buzzword. You know, I think the sharing economy stuff actually did start out really beneficial and the term got charged with some positive meaning. And now, of course, you know, it's going to become a mask when for a bunch of crap. When was the day the sharing died? Exactly. I mean, and... It's already dead. It's Yeah, it was like Napster or something. It was a long time ago. I don't know. So anyway, that's our podcast on the sharing economy. Uh, and where we think it's going. Tell us what you think in a comment or send us an email. Uh, we love to hear from you guys. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.